You're listening to Veg Your Best with vegan life coach Michelle Olander. Episode 86, an interview with author and journalist Henry Mance. Welcome or welcome back. Today, today we have an interview with someone I think you are just going to love listening to and learning all about. Henry Mance is chief features writer for the Financial Times in London, and he's also a husband, a father, and an author of a wonderful book that came across my desk this winter, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. I love this book. It is a book full of facts and experiences, history and synthesis, and personal reflection. And it's a book full of humor, as well as deep sadness and concerns for our planet and the relationship, the relationship between humans and animals, especially now in this world, this world we humans have shaped. A world where virtually everyone says they love and appreciate animals, where we teach our children from their earliest moments to cherish animals in books and in cuddle toys and in videos. But Henry Mance asks whether our choices, our actions, our lifestyles are aligned with that statement that we love or respect animals. No generation, Henry writes, no generation of humans has loved animals more, and no generation has kept more of them in factory farms or pushed more of them to extinction. And if you're worried that this is going to be a preachy or aggressive or depressing interview, or book, I want to tell you right now, no. Henry Mance has written this book from his own very personal, very witty, very journalistic perspective to help us see what is always there, but we sometimes don't remember to look at. So one quick thing before we go to the interview. As I said, I loved this book when I found it. I love it for its humor and wit and first-person adventures, as well as the carefully researched and cited information. And I found myself thinking about the book one day and about me and this podcast, and I noticed myself thinking, oh my gosh, I would love to have Henry Mance on Veg Your Best. And I said it like, the tone in my head was like, well, there's no way that could happen. No way. Oxford-educated, Financial Times journalist, uh, voted Interviewer of the Year 2017 by British Press Awards. And you should see his tweets on current affairs and politics on Twitter. This, this, in a nutshell, is what coaching does for you. It gets you to notice when you are talking in your head, whether it's on behalf of your goals or whether it's when you're being complicit with what you say you don't want. So I noticed that I was thinking, no way will Henry Mance say yes. But as I say, that coaching helps you notice those thoughts. So I decided, okay, all right, I see you. I see you negative thoughts. I'm going to let Henry Mance 
decide himself if he wants to be on this pod and not decide in advance for him. Cut to me in an Uber on my way to the airport this spring when I got the message that he'd be pleased to be on Veg Your Best. So, while you're listening to Henry Mance talk about his wonderful book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World, I want you to open up a little window in the back of your mind for something you could be asking for that you've been talking yourself out of. Okay, I'll catch you on the other side of the interview with how you can get a copy of his book from me. Henry Mance, welcome to Veg Your Best. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's such an honor for me to have you here. Um, your book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World, I was terrified I'd say it wrong, um, was really um, a wonderful discovery for me. And I've been trying to figure out where I ran into your book. And I don't know, I cannot figure it out, but I'm so glad that I did. So glad. Excellent. So I wanted to start with, um, I had described your book to people as a meditation on humans and their relationships with animals. But I wanted to say that this is not something, it's not like an armchair type of meditation. This isn't a very academic it's cerebral, but it's very active. And um, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you agree that you are that kind of gonzo type of journalist, that idea of first person journalist. Well, this book really freed me to go out and be, I mean, you know, not Hunter S. Thompson going through um, the desert, but, you know, as close to that as, um, as I could manage, because I really felt like I had these questions inside me of, um, you know, what do I want my relationship to animals to be? And what did I want my kids' relationship to animals to be? I've got young children. Um, and I realized that I was passing on without thinking about it, all of my habits, or I would do in, unless I stopped. And I think the wonderful thing about um, uh, this sort of writing this for me was all of these animals I had in my mind that I had some kind of um, compassion for, that I had some love for, that I'd seen on TV, on a wildlife documentary, and I, I'd loved. I could sort of go out and find a way of getting in closer contact with them, whether that was working on a farm or, or going to particular national parks or reserves or just sort of spending more time gazing into the pond in my garden. And so, yeah, I really hope that, it, um, uh, you know, we all have these questions inside of us of, you know, what do we want our impact on, on this world to be? And so I really hope that it can provoke other people to go through the same process. Well, there are so many different parts of the book. I was trying to think of how to how to lead our listeners through it a little bit. But you have that the beginning is is about um, how we use animals, how we use them for for food, for sport, for um, entertainment. And then the other half is is more about how we love animals and our, our hope to reconcile kind of comes in between. And what you notice is we are always choosing not to see certain things. And I think this is what I've learned becoming vegans. We're, we're spending an awful lot of time not seeing things that are right in front of us. Um, well, why don't you t- explain to me, how did you set this book up? Because clearly some of the work you've done, you've written from um, maybe years before. Um, I mean, it's, uh, some of it's is, is over. The, it brings together lots of things from my life. So I used to live in South America. I used to live in, uh, in Colombia, which has you know, amongst other uh, other things, the the most number of bird species of any country on earth. And so you're sort of surrounded by, you know, amazing hummingbirds and, and other things. 
and um, you suddenly realize that a lot of this is disappearing around you and you think, well, what is it about our way of living which makes that possible? But I wanted to start, I mean, I started with a simple idea that it must be possible not just to love animals in uh, theory or just to say you love animals or to enjoy sharing cat videos, which I, I you know, I love doing with my my now wife, you know, um, you know, writing uh, captions on memes about cats, etc. Um, and I just thought it must it must be possible not only to do that in theory, but to live a life that respects that value that if I if I love cats, if I love jaguars, if I love the sight of giraffes in the wild, that I must be able to live a life that in some way uh, respects that. And so I went through the various ways that we treat animals. And I started off with food because I, I think it really is the most important way, although we don't, um, you know, we don't go to slaughterhouses, we don't even go to farms, we don't even really see sort of um, dead animals if we eat them and, and sometimes they arrive on our plates and they're barely recognizable um, and I think that's part of the reason why chicken is so popular uh, has become so popular because it doesn't it doesn't remind us of an animal it doesn't look red and bloody like a like a steak does um, and so I wanted to go to um, uh, go into that sort of food system and to and to sort of really bring home to myself what it all involves you know what what is it like to work in a slaughterhouse I, I worked in a slaughterhouse you know what is it like to work on a pig farm I, I, I did um I did that and I, I you know I spoke to people who who could sort of help me understand whether this was uh consistent with being an animal lover and in the end I decided you know that on that on that question that the food system just in, involves so many compromises that I think it's better to to opt out really of um, of eating meat and dairy and eggs. And I think that I also believe that there is a you know a good life, a a, a fulfilling life, a fun life that can come uh, with being vegan. And I I you know one of the things that really came home to me was it doesn't affect your friendships, it doesn't affect um, your personality or your identity. I mean, my wife when I was vegetarian. Um, she, uh, she said to me, look, vegetarianism is fine, but if you go vegan, it's divorceable. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. I know no intention of going vegan. And then I found out about the dairy industry and I went vegan. And you know what? It's not divorceable. You know, it, 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 it turns out all these things you're afraid of um, are not necessarily the case. And I went through from, um, from that through, uh, I looked at the fishing industry and, um, and there, I mean, there's something, one amazing dynamic of that is, you know, a lot of people listening to this, I'm sure will have seen My Octopus Teacher, the Netflix documentary, which won an Oscar. Um, and all that showed us about um, octopus intelligence, curiosity. Now, at the same time, I, you know, I traveled to Spain, where people are setting up the world's first octopus farms, mm. so that it's cheaper um, to eat uh, octopus. And I sort of we have this contradiction in our society where as the very time that we're learning so much about the intelligence and the curiosity of animals, we're also making it easier for, to, to eat them and also keeping them in less and less natural conditions. So I really wanted to um, to bring these home to myself and also to people who, who I think just have no consciousness when they're ordering at a restaurant of what an octopus might involve or what ordering such a thing might involve. So I went I went through these stages and I think it's a really helpful process to to believe that your actions as an individual matter, that you're not just sort of going with the tide that you're uh, or going with the current rather, um, that actually there's a point to thinking through your choices. And that also, if you change your behavior, that others will come with you. I mean, that's one of, for me, one of the most powerful things is that not only my friends who 
uh, who have seen or have come around for dinner and eaten vegan food, but um, have also sort of been to vegan restaurants and ordered vegan there. But but also people have read the book and just said, well, look, I'm going to change my habits. And actually, you know, uh, one of my relatives or another another friend is going to do the same. And I think that change passes through a society much more quickly than we believe. I totally agree. I, I think, and, and I think it's lovely to have different people. Um, I don't know if you would consider yourself, like I don't consider myself as a, a stereotypical vegan because I came to this much later in life. Uh, I don't have the dreadlocks. I'm not a hippie. I'm, you know, I'm kind of a, of a very conventional older woman. And so I think it's kind of fun when people come at you vegan who are not the stereotype. Yeah. And I, I don't know whether I would have lasted or uh, thrived as a vegan in, you know, uh, well, certainly in, certainly in the 1840s or whatever, when it became popular in, in London for the first time. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have made it then. And, you know, would I have made it in the 1970s or the 1980s? Would I have been a bit too conventional, a bit, a bit um, less willing to stick out? But I have to say over the past five, 10 years in London, where I live, but also in the places I've been lucky enough to travel, it's just become so much more accepted and so much easier. And I asked someone in um, in a cafe not long ago near where I live, I said, have you got oat milk? And they looked at me like completely astonished at how I could ask such a basic question. For them, it was like, have I, had they got coffee? You know, and so I think that the it's only going to get easier is what I say to myself. You know, that the investment going into alternative proteins now, um, the, the, the sort of the consciousness around sustainability means that you know, it will be much, e it's much easier to be a vegan now than it was five years ago. And in five years time, I think it will be loads easier still. Yeah, I think it, I think it is so much easier now than 10, 15, 30 years ago, and certainly than in the 1800s. But I, I'm wondering what uh, I've heard you discuss that there is this, um, there's a certain pushback with people saying, this is not what the change we need is not individual choice, it is institutional or or state-sponsored state choice. Um, but I've heard you say that we need to get a little bit of a tipping point, the way we needed a tipping point with other, other issues in our society, like, for example, smoking. We needed enough people comfortably saying, no, 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 this really is, needs to be looked at and, we, and demonstrating it before these bigger, more institutional choices can, um, can occur. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, and I'm so glad you raised this point, Michelle, because it really, it really um, uh, matters to me. And I, it, you know, I'm someone who, you know, my day job is actually writing about politics quite often. So I do, I do believe in in the power of, uh, uh, you know, movements and political parties and politicians to to change things. Um, but I also think that that only happens at a certain point. That right now we're at a, maybe a couple of percentage points of the population who are saying. I'm going to opt out of eating meat. And maybe a slightly bigger group is saying, I'm going to eat less meat. And I think that is such a small slice of the population that it's really hard for governments to say, we're going to, um, we're going to disincentivize meat eating. We're going to cut subsidies for uh, factory farms. We're going to uh, pour billions of uh, dollars into uh, funding alternative proteins. We're going to make schools vegan only, or, uh, whatever it might be. These things are so difficult when you're just playing to a very small num uh, number. And I think the smoking comparison is the one I make because, you know, the government government didn't start taxing cigarettes when um, when most adults smoked. You know, they 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 waited really for 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 some of the health warnings to be taken on board, smoking to go down, and then you could start 
introducing really quite serious taxes and also banning smoking in public places. You couldn't do that when most um, when most people smoke because suddenly you know your your restaurants would be completely empty. And um, and actually, meat eating is far more prevalent than smoking ever was. I mean, you're you know you're dealing with 90, 95 percent of the population. And we just if we can just um, grow the the sort of the people who have opted out into a slightly bigger group, then I think that 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 will give uh, leaders and politicians the space in which to act. And so I, we shouldn't see it as a trade. Uh, you know, either you're you're acting as an individual or you believe in politics. It's the it's the it's really part of the same process. And some of the people I most who I saw most committed to individual change have been those uh, activists on the street uh, demonstrating against climate change, demonstrating against industrial farming. And they, they wanted the government to do stuff, but they were going to do absolutely everything they could as individuals first. Um, and, and otherwise, and I, I'm afraid if you don't do that, then as a protester, you just get accused of being a hypocrite. So really, it, 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 it's self-defeating anyway. But I, I, I think the nice thing about changing your diet or, or sticking to a vegan diet is that you you can really feel part of a societal shift. I, I think that's true. And I think we need to um, not talk ourselves out of how important an individual's choices are, because there is there is such a ripple effect as as um, when you show yourself as living a happy, healthy, uh, connected, non-marginalized existence as a vegan, it does open up the possibility for people who never considered it before. I, I often talk... Um, I became vegan after I listened to a lot of ultra endurance athletes, men 20 years younger than myself who were <laughs> vegan athletes. And I'm not an athlete, but it somehow made me think, okay, so I, I'm probably going to be okay <laughs> if, I, yeah. if I can do that. So, it, it, so it, you don't know who's listening to you, who's watching you, who's seeing the way you, you function, that um, it can make a real, a real difference. One of, one of my recent podcasts was about some of my clients who think, what difference does it make? There's this enormous industrial agricultural uh, situation. There, there is a climate there's plastic, there's pollution, there's methane. <laughs> I mean, what difference does my little choice make in my grocery basket or the clothes that I buy? And I think you're telling us it does matter. It can matter. It, it does matter. And I think um, also don't, I, I, I would say to people, don't forget the feeling of satisfaction of just not feeling guilty about what you, what you eat. I mean, like people often talk about the meat paradox, which is, you know, how can we love animals and yet eat them you know love animals like our dogs but then eat animals that um, are as intelligent as as our dogs on, on in many respects um and but i like to think of the sort of vegetarian paradox which is that um or, or the vegan paradox which is that by narrowing down what you eat you've actually the stuff on your plate is is are things that you've made a conscious decision to eat and you can eat them sort of free from free from the contradictions or free from the um, the worry that this is causing harm you're you're sort of helping to promote with every mouthful with every dollar you spend on it helping to promote a lifestyle that you think is um, sustainable and ethical and so I really have felt more pleasure in my food since uh, going vegetarian and vegan than I have before yeah I agree I have a much uh, I don't talk about food very often as a, as a coach but I I show my lunch very often on Instagram and I have a much more varied diet now than I ever did when I was eating, eating animals and dairy. Um, it's, it's just full of stuff. It's full of all kinds of choices. So it does not feel restrictive 
at all for me. Yeah, that's that's so I'm I'm looking at what a couple of the quotes and and I'm going to tell you one thing. I'm Polish. Um, my father taught me because everything is about the Polish question if you grow up Polish. And I he said every nonfiction book you open up and you see in the index if there's anything about Poland. And lovely, yours yours did. Yours had a couple of things. <laughs> you, you had, I knew there was a reason you'd invited me on, Michelle. <laughs> You had Augustus Strong, and so I'm going to challenge you. You said Augustus Strong, who was who was king of um, of Poland and Saxony, died of alcohol poisoning. Of course, of course. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> what was that's a quote? Why? Why? Of course, Henry. <laughs> uh, no, it, this this was a guy who was um, you know uh, just in love with excess, so you know didn't know any limits and had all the. Um, all the trappings of being um, a, a king before before the age of democracy. So, you know, I talk about him collecting animals and right. loving to hunt animals and, you know, having these, you know, barbaric um, celebrations where, you know, animal lives were were lost by the hundred just for, you know, just to try and relieve some kind of boredom or some kind of scratch some itch in the mind of these, um, these aristocrats. Uh, so yeah, I thought alcohol, alcohol poisoning was um, was a, a a fitting way for him to go. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting, you know. I I'm an art historian by by training, and and so often animals are have been used as collections, as demonstrations of of um, imperial uh, contact, of being able to bring things from one end of the world to the other, to to this place where they don't belong, where they're not native, as a as a demonstration of power, as a demonstration of, of sometimes of uh, intellectual interest, but very often just a demonstration of yeah, look what I can do, mostly power, um, and I th and I think that's so it's such an interesting you bring in this history, the arc of history about the idea of zoos and collections and animals menageries, which I thought was really interesting, very very a good way of balancing out what we think of zoos because I loved zoos. I always loved zoos and I am so conflicted about them now. And, um, and partially because I loved them so much as a, as a kid. And then as a mom, I brought my kids to zoos all the time thinking I was doing a good thing. Yeah. I, and I was a kid who, who loved the zoos. We had pandas, uh, um, at London zoo. Um, and I used to go, go all the time and, and, and it was really going back as a as a young adult that I just noticed something wasn't quite working for me. It wasn't quite right. And I was like, but the zoo is a happy place. Why isn't it making me happy? And I sort of got thinking about it and I got reading about it. And one of the things that the history showed me was that, you know, zoos were not set up for, for the benefit of animals, for the benefit of conservation. They were set up for some of the re uh, some of the reasons you've mentioned. And, and also, I mean, you know, imagine living in 19th century Europe and never having seen a giraffe. I mean, you'd want to see one. You'd be amazed. Of course, you'd go down to the zoo to see one. Um, and, and so once you understand that the history was really to satisfy human curiosity and also some scientific um, sort of uh, inquiry, then I think you you can much more easily take on board the idea that they don't work for animals in their current form so the elephants are there in some zoos because we like to look at them it doesn't actually help the populations of um, African elephants to have a few isolated um, elephants in in cold parts of Europe or cold parts of North America where they're not particularly happy they don't breed well um, and so 
Um, I now see zoos as somewhere where I don't I don't take my kids, but I think they do have a role. Um, and I think it's to really to focus on those animals who who can be bred well in zoos. So, you know, the smaller animals, the, you know, the frogs who are, you know, a third of amphibian species are threatened with extinction. So we can use um, zoos to, to really uh, boost those animals. And and also, I think that the, the zoos kind of assume that you want to see the, the biggest animals and kids want to see the biggest animals. They want to see the tigers, lions, mm-hmm. uh, bears, et cetera. And, I'm not really, I'm not really convinced that's right. You know, when you see a giraffe in a zoo, the giraffe isn't doing anything because it doesn't have, they don't have enough space really. They don't, and they don't have a need to run around or to, to really show their majesty. I, I, um, I find them quite sad places for, for giraffes. Whereas, you know, watching, watching frogs in my pond, my, my daughter absolutely loves it because they're, they're in their space, they're in their element and they're, they're moving, they're, they're, they're active. And I think, that's what we need to promote and under, uh, sort of anything that can um, that allow animals to exercise their natural behaviors. And so we shouldn't assume that that um, that kids will only go and see to zoos if they are the biggest animals. They can watch those on TV, which is something that obviously people uh, 200 years ago when some of these zoos were set up didn't have. So we've got to recognize that times have changed. And um, I feel sad, slightly sad about zoos because people who work in zoos are often lovely and well-meaning, but the institutions are just a little outdated, I'm afraid. Yeah, and I love that you offer this as a kind of um, uh, alternative that to get out into nature and look in a pond, look in a puddle, look out in the woods, um, that, that this is in many ways a far superior form of exposure to nature and to animals for ourselves and for our kids than, than the zoos. Um, and it, I think sometimes it seems a little bit like, hmm. How, how fun is that? But it could be really fun if you if you change your, your mindset about it. I know that I went to the Washington National Zoo one time and saw a, a female gorilla just doing kind of OCD type of movements. Just, I mean, I, I'm still emotional thinking about it. She was just like, not, not, I'm trying to remember how, she was basically just throwing up and then eating her vomit and throwing up and eating her vomit over and over. And everybody standing watching her was just really de- up- upset. I mean, literally emotionally um, traumatized watching this poor animal doing something that looked so clearly um, depressed or, or, tra- or, or, or herself traumatized. And another time I saw the, the big um, polar bear at the Central Park Zoo just doing laps in his little, in his little pool over and over and the, the zoo lost its bloom for me along the way but still until you kind of get your mind around it you go oh that's just an anomaly or that's just a that's just one little thing no the, in general it's wonderful but um it's the time has really passed i think for zoos i mean that sounds uh, truly sad and i think also i i you know zoos really say as one of their key purposes is to educate us but what are they really teaching us? They're teaching us that, you know, animals, as where someone I spoke to for the book says, they're teaching you that animals can live in these small spaces and, and they can't. And actually, you know, David Attenborough, who, um, uh, you know, is, is our sort of foremost, you know, our face of wildlife here. I mean, his first programs for the BBC were going to far-flung places of the earth and bringing back animals and giving them to the zoo. So, I mean, you know, really unethical behavior now, taking animals from the wild and putting them in the zoos. But he now says that gorillas, so like the gorilla you saw in, in Washington, gorillas should not be in zoos. 
And I think that's so interesting. You know, we, we're getting to a point where the really largest animals, the, the gorillas and the elephants, will not be in, in the best zoos will say that we just can't take care of them well enough. And then, you know, we'll have, there'll come a point about where do you draw the line, you know, which animals can you get? But I think, I think with the, with some of the biggest animals and certainly animals who are used to very different climates to the ones they, they're kept in, the ones that have complex social groups that we struggle to, to replicate. I think, I think the, the answer is pretty clear and I'm glad that David Attenborough has come to that conclusion. I think any, any of us who have a, any experience with a dog or a cat or any other kind of home pet animal, um, we know we've seen kind of neurotic behavior in them yeah. and undepressed behavior or uh, hysterical behavior in them. And so we know animals um, do, do they, they both mirror our own emotions in a family structure, and they also have their own very, very personal um, emotional states. And the, and, and the idea of these large animals that we think that they don't is... Um, is, is kind of the, the paradox that you talk about in your, your book, that we are so connected with our pets in modern Western culture. We're so, in, we're so involved with them. Some of them are getting psychoactive medications to make them happier or less stressed out. You know, When I was a young woman or a young child, nobody would have spent thousands of dollars on uh, pets' medical care. No. No, I mean, nobody I know, maybe, maybe, maybe Liberace, I don't know, maybe somebody, from <laughs> some glamorous Elizabeth Taylor, I don't know, but nobody normal would. And now I know, I know my children have paid money for their, for their animal surgery. Um, it's a commonplace and it is a really a paradox for what animals we, we value in that kind of financial way, not just, not just emotional. Yeah, I'm really, um, I mean, I, I, I was really fascinated. I spent some time in San Francisco and I felt that there even the sort of the, the attachment to, um, to, to, to dogs in particular was just even stronger than I'd seen in, um, in, in England. And I really saw this, this coupling of, uh, you know, um, the animal's personality and the human's personality and this expectation that they sh the, the two could be the same, that you could do the same activities, that you could, you could be one. And, and look, I think there are some things that we haven't got right there, which is, you know, which, uh, which dogs we're breeding, for example. I mean, I think uh, French bulldogs are, are, are really mostly not very good and well-bred animals. And I, I, I really don't understand why people find them so attractive, um, although it's clearly something to do with the flat face and the baby faceness of, of them. But it's really like, you know, a, a one minute Google will tell you all the reasons why you don't want uh, your dog's airways to be in that shape and you don't want their their faces to have, um, to be in such a position where the, the eyelids might not even be able to close. But having said all that, I also think that our love for our pets, our willingness to spend on them, it's just, a, it's a, it could be a great springboard. It could really help us in our relationship with other animals. I mean, look, we have so many animals at risk of extinction around the world mm -hmm. and they're going extinct because nobody will pay for to protect the forests in which they're from nobody will pay to you know um uh to create an, another source of income for the people who live nearby those animals to take care of them or um and and we also have very many animals on farms who are treated very badly uh, because people won't pay enough for their meat because people will insist on eating meat and so if we can just transfer a little bit of the love we have for our pets a little bit of the understanding we have to our relationship with other animals then wouldn't we be in a you know in a, an amazing position? Wouldn't we really um, 
has something to work with. And you're right, it's it's something that we didn't have 50 years ago when, you know, your dog got sick and you took them out uh, out into the yard and, you know, and uh, that was the end for them. And so I really think um, we have to grasp at the good things we're doing um, rather than just saying, you know, everything's terrible with this mess of contradictions. I know there's a temptation to do that, but to say, let's salvage what we salvage and, and indeed celebrate what we can out of our relationship with pets and then um, bring that to bear on the rest of the uh, animal world. I know that, you know, I have a cat um, who, who I love very much, who I know eats uh, eats meat and has a has a, um, a footprint of her own on, on this planet. And it just sort of, there is a, there is a contradiction there, but it, all, it, all it does is it sort of inspires me to, to make sure that I'm having a positive impact in other areas. So if, if I have my cat who, who is eating meat and uh, including some chickens, which probably don't have the best life, then I must go and make sure that I'm, um, I'm trying to compensate that in, in other ways in other parts of uh, my life. So you don't see that as um, as insufficient because I mean I, I, that's something I consider as as there's no way to do it all perfectly. There's no way because we also don't know what's perfect. We also don't know what really makes things better. So we have to just keep trying to learn and be open to learning. Um, I sometimes think that the pets are our devotion to our pets is some kind of uh, escape from that cognitive dissonance we have about our animal agriculture that we're like no 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 I love animals <laughs> don't don't tell me I don't I I do that's exactly what it is yeah um I mean is it I I really someone pointed me someone who isn't vegan pointed me towards the um, the sort of mission um statement of the vegan society um and I, I'd forgotten that what it says is, you know, eliminate the use of animal products, but as far as is possible, you know, so it's pragmatic. And I really think that um, some of the annoying questions you get as a vegan of, you know, do you eat honey or do you, eat, uh, um, I mean, I think you come back, or, or, or what about your leather watch strap that from a, a watch that was passed down to you from generations or whatever it might be? Like come back to that point that as far as is possible, and it's better to do ninety percent than to do zero, you know. And like, I don't want us to spend all our emotional energy worrying about that last ten percent. I want us to get as many people as possible to to doing the ninety percent. And um, you know, I try and I try and um, go the extra mile. I mean, I'm uh, as we speak, I'm sort of slipping on my uh, my vegan sandals and and all that. But um, but. I don't want people to beat themselves up. I don't want people who read my book to think um, unless I go the whole uh, the whole way, there's no point uh, because that's that's really not what what we need to do as a society. We need to get as many people on board, and some of them will go one hundred percent, some of them will go fifty percent, some of them ninety percent, um, and that's fine. But the the way of help of of um, I think helping change happen is not to not to get. Uh, caught up in neuroses to make change seem easy and enjoyable and so that's what that's certainly what even even having done this uh, which you, what you kindly called as a meditation on it um you know occasionally I stop meditating and I just sort of you know I act I just say look I these you know my cat needs to eat yeah well veganism is not something else for I think for humans to just beat themselves up about I I think it and there's very difficult it's very hard to be 100% vegan without starting by being 10 or 30 or 50%. I mean, you kind of need to learn those skills in this world where it's set up culturally, it's set up economically, it's set up 
industrially to not be vegan. So to opt out, you need to come up with a few skills and a few abilities. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's not something to go all or nothing to, to think about all or nothing. You know, you were talking about frogs being, or uh, did you say frogs were on the endangered list or the entire, the oh, amphibians, a third of amphibians are they're, they're, you know, they're in the tropics, especially they're being really badly hit. Mm, because I drove down from, I live in Western Massachusetts. I drove down to Florida in the beginning of February and I didn't really have to clean my um, windshield of bugs <laughs> the whole way yeah. down. And that was like at the second day, I was like, that's crazy. That's, that's crazy. There should be bugs all over my windshield, especially as I got down to North Carolina and, and Georgia and Florida. That means there's no insects. And that's what they eat. Yeah, I, uh, you, you're absolutely right. And you know, I remember as a kid, we used to have uh, lunch in the garden and there used to be a fly squat. And as a kid, I used to find this amazing, you know, there's a bit of, a bit of plastic and, you know, you'd hit, hit wasps in particular that were trying to, trying to take uh, a bit of the food. And like, I just realized that in recent years, we just haven't needed a fly squat. You know, there's just been no flies, no wasps. And like, that's terrifying. And by the way, so this is before I, I realized this before I, I went vegan. I think now I, now I sort of, uh, I'm not, I'm not desperate to kill wasps in any case, but like, yeah, it's it's really terrifying what we're losing, and I I do feel very sad that my my kids will will grow up in a world without some of these animals. And yeah, if if um, the insects go, then the birds go, the amphibians go, and exactly, um, you know, it, it, I, you go back to Rachel Carson, who uh, when she wrote Silent Spring, she said, you know, who has the right to decide that these animals won't exist? And I don't think we have taken a decision as a society that we don't want these animals. If anything, we've taken a decision that with all the love we show them, with all the clips, all the wildlife documentaries, we've taken a decision that we do want these animals, but it's just that our behavior isn't following through. And so I really um, I really believe we should do absolutely everything to, to like live our values, to, to leave a legacy that we would be proud of. In, in the United States, I mean, I, I tend to be a Pollyanna and, um maybe all, all, all facts to the contrary, but I can, I, I know I grew up near the Connecticut River. I still live near the Connecticut River. Um, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, the pollution was tremendous and ospreys and other animals weren't, their eggs, because of the different pollu pollutants, um, their eggs wouldn't form. So they were endangered. Now they're ospreys. I see them in my house in Florida. I see them in, in Rhode Island. I see them all the time. They're, they're back. They're really, really back. So I know we can, as a culture and as a, a society, we can do things that are um, kind of amazing. We can bring things back from the brink. Um, and I just wonder if um, we have the, the will to do it. So it, it's, so for, I think at least individual vegans, individual vegetarians, individual people who are looking, maybe that's not their method, but they, they work with zero waste. They work with other kinds of um, uh, ways of approaching, approaching these problems. We can do something that at least um, stands up for the things we, we value. You know what I'm very curious about? I'm curious about uh, what didn't make the book. Typically, writers have a lot of things, a lot of ideas that don't fit in the long run. What didn't fit? Well, wow, that's a, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, when I, when I lived in Colombia, um, uh, when I was in my twenties, 
there was this story about um, uh, these hi hippos that had been brought over by Pablo Escobar to Colombia, the drug lord had brought them over along with loads of other African wildlife because he could, because he had the money. Um, he certainly didn't need to worry about customs. And he brought them over to a, sort of a, uh, his estate outside the city of Medellin. Um, and uh, they, they lived there until he was eventually uh, imprisoned and then killed when he was on the run. And a lot of the animals in this part were taken care of, but the, the, the sort of the hippos just acclimatized themselves to Colombia, the waterways, they had no real competition and they, they, they went on breeding and they became incredibly um, fertile and, uh, and successful. And they had no problems in this part of, um, part of Colombia. And then the Colombian government had this question of, well, what do we do with these hippos? And they became both a sort of cause celebre in Colombia in terms of, wow, we've got these animals who are quite unlike our native wildlife. I mean, Colombia has amazing wildlife, but it doesn't have the big um, sort of African style animals um, like uh, lions and giraffes that, that, um, that sort of go easily on a newspaper front page. And so there was this question of whether someone should go out and and kill the and kill the hippos or whether they could be in some way removed or, or whether they should just be allowed to go on reproducing in the um in the uh, in the area and i was you know at that time i was actually working for a, a biodiversity think tank and a nature think tank in in colombia and they didn't want anything to do with it because it was this sort of political hot potato that was only going to go uh, go wrong and actually even now so we're, we're now over a decade later, the Colombian government has just decided to call these hippos an invasive species. So it just decided that maybe it needs to control the number of hippos. But for me, it was a real, it was a real wake up call in terms of just how, you know, our compassion for individual animals often conflicts with what is good for the, you know, the natural environment in that case. And there was a real uh, trade off that the hippos were doing well, but other native wildlife was not doing well. And so it was, a, it was a really tricky dilemma and it didn't quite fit into anything I was writing in this book. But I am aware that, you know, things are not perfect, that not, e not every question has a simple answer. Like I think not eating factory farmed pork or not eating factory farmed uh, chicken is one of the easiest moral questions that we get asked in this life. But like what to do with these hippos was a slightly harder question. And mm. I think, you know, conservationists would say you should have killed them, but I'd fed one of these uh, hippos carrots and she was a delightful animal. So then you sort of, you're confused. Um, and there is a whole battle going on between the different sides of that argument. So that's the next book or maybe part of the next <laughs> yeah. book. The hippos will still be there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. We, well, I, I live in suburban areas and we have now, well, we've always had foxes a bit, but we have coyotes all the time. We have uh, bobcats now, which are pretty, pretty new to our area. Um, and it's partially, um, partially, it's, it's, it's habitat destruction that they've been pushed into our, um, I, I read in your book about the foxes uh, having smaller brains in urban environments then mm. in is it, um, you have so many facts in the book. I mean, so many, but um, that that interested me that perhaps they didn't need such big brains to find garbage and household compost. And is that is that what you were saying? Well, yeah, <laughs> I, mean, there, I think it works differently with different species. What's what what they need to uh, adapt. But I I mean, 
um, it's a it's a relatively recent phenomenon. It's only in the past couple of decades that foxes have become sort of really um, ever present in London. And I just love the fact that they don't really care that we're here. You know, they they like eating our food and our leftovers, obviously. But you know, they 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 don't sort of they're not afraid of us. They're not uh, they're not aggressive, certainly. And I just love that feeling of having animals around us who um, who not living in a world that is just purely human. And I think that um, cities can can sometimes feel like that. And so creating these little pockets of space, whether it's parks or gardens or whatever, where where animals can come, I think that's really the way of reminding ourselves that the world is not just about us. The world is much more. I think that is the perfect spot to end this with, because that really is what your book is about. I um, And I, I think at the end also, and in your book, I hope people will will buy it. I hope people will read it. You have a bunch of, you have great source material. You, you help people um, find some of the information that you've used. Um, and it's not just dry footnotes. It's actually very interesting um, background material that you've used and writers you've, you've quoted from. And you also have a bunch of steps that you, you encourage people to, um, to look at and see what fits for them. And as you said, things like not eating pork and, and chicken is a very easy way, even to limit it and see that you can do it. Once you try, you won't miss it that much. Um, I, I think uh, I think this book is is just really a treat for people. It's not um, it's not polemical the way I see the vegan polem polemicist um, tracts. It's really very much about real human beings functioning in the real world and taking a look at at what we can do and what's what's available for us. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with other than please go buy the book? Because I think it's a book that's going to sell for um, for years. I think it's going to be something that will will be interesting to people for years, not just uh, this year, this this season. No, I um, thank you so much for your kind words, Michelle. It means a lot to me. And I really, you know, for me, it was a it was a journey of a few years to to give up meat and then give up dairy as well. I just it was really worthwhile and I, all I say to people is just you know do what you can ask the questions see where it leads you don't feel pressure and don't worry that people will judge you I mean they really don't uh I I um I I like to say that um that you know going vegan changed my family Christmas less than the arrival of tv streaming did I mean like really you know you're if you're worried about all your bonds falling apart then really no the, you know changing your diet is is the least of it in this world so um and i hope that the book the book is intended to be slightly funny you know a lot of the stuff i i write in my day job is is meant to be funny i don't believe this is a something where i you know pole polemics aren't the only way of coming at these issues so um thank you so much for your kind words and i you know i hope people do read it and do um uh, do feel empowered that's great. That's great. And we're going to we're going to give away a couple of books when this goes live at the end of uh, April. We're going to give away a couple of books to my listeners. And the, the title of the book, let me make sure I say it correctly. How to Love Animals in a Human Shaped World. Henry Mance. Thank you very much for being with us today. Hey, thanks so much. So what did you think? What did you think of Henry Mance? Could he be more of a delight? First of all, if you know someone, if you know anyone who's been resistant to veganism or to the message that we offer here at Veg Your Best, I really recommend you share this interview with that person or share Henry Mance's book itself, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. I think that Henry is really a marvelous 
welcoming and highly intelligent entry point for some of the people around us who may have been put off by some of the messaging around veganism. And secondly, I wanted to give you an opportunity to get a free copy of Henry's book, the actual physical in real life edition of How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. That's if you're in the U.S. Or the ebook or audio version if you're not. Henry is the narrator of the audio version, and it's honestly, it's excellent. I highly recommend it. So to get a copy from me, you just need to write a short review, short review of this podcast on iTunes, hopefully with five stars, if that's in alignment with your thoughts, and then send me a screenshot. You can email the screenshot to info at michelleolandercoaching.com, and the links are all in the show notes here. Nothing would give me greater pleasure than to send you or your loved one a copy of How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World by Henry Mance. Honestly, I think this is a very, very important book disguised as a really great read. Veg Your Best podcast production, music, and editing by Charlie Weinshank. Thanks, Charlie. Before you go, it would mean so much to me and the Veg Your Best team if you would hit subscribe, leave us a five-star review, or share with someone you think might be interested. Something about algorithms, it helps bump us up a little in the rankings, and that's the best way to help others find the podcast and for us to find our audience. So until next week, make it easy and veg your best.